Let's stand and sing hallelujah, what a savior, on page 311. See? 
temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. stand for our scripture reading tonight. The scripture reading tonight comes from Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 9. He was despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Please be seated. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is the message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. What do we mean by these terms, gospel, message, the word? Simply put, it is a good story or good news. That is, God's story, the life of Christ, God in the flesh who walked among us. The Gospels give us a forecount of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. They present us with many faces of our Savior. Like the facets of a gemstone, each side adds to the whole. And we must look at all the sides to have a true understanding of this precious gem's work. <clears throat> Together, the Gospel writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us a comprehensive look at our Savior's loving kindness, mercy, grace, and redemptive power. 
They carry the authority to speak to any person in any circumstance. They reach from those who first heard their words almost 2,000 years ago and half a world away to each person sitting here tonight. But who were these four men? Their voices are each unique, each distinctive. Not only does each book reflect the personal perspective of its author, but also God's purpose for speaking through him. To best reach a particular group with his story, listen as they speak to each of us across time. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, Boaz, was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Matthew, the Jewish tax collector, was hated by his own people as a tool of their Roman oppressors. He knew all the prophecies of the Messiah, and he presented Jesus as the king of kings, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. As a tax collector, Matthew knew the importance of good record-keeping, of understanding where something originated, where it was going as well as its ultimate purpose. From the beginning, by his careful record of Jesus' legal genealogy through Joseph, he showed Jesus' connection to David's lineage and throne and his rightful claim to kingship. So all the gener generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among them, the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who is a shepherd my people, Israel. As well as Jesus' lordship, Matthew emphasized the mercy of his loving king over and over. He knew all about the sting of bitter hatred and disdain and was eager to share the message of a compassionate ruler who had not come to condemn but to ransom his children from eternal death. The heart of Matthew's gospel was just this, that Jesus... He who would save his people from their sins had not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he had the power and authority to do so. Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. To Mark, listening to the disciple of Peter's accounts and thinking back on what he had seen as a youth growing up, probably in a prominent Jewish family, Jesus was the servant king, a living example of one who used his power and authority, not for personal glory, but for the good of his subjects, to strengthen, support, and sustain them. From the start, Mark showed Jesus going about his father's business, working to seek and to save the lost. Though he was Jewish, Mark's primary goal was to reach the Gentiles, especially the Romans. He felt the urgency of times. He knew that his particular audience wanted actions, not words. Accordingly, he got straight to Jesus' ministry. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. After John had been taken custody, Jesus came into Galilee, 
preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark, as a companion and probable convert of Peter, seemed to share Peter's vigor and constant sense of forward motion. He focused on Jesus' actions and the calling of our God made flesh to serve and to save his people. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke, a Greek physician, met the Apostle Paul probably as his doctor, treating Paul's physical infirmity. Paul returned the favor by introducing Luke to his great physician, who was able to heal the sickness of our souls. As scientists and a man of great learning, Luke listened to Paul, hearing all he had to tell of the Savior. Then, while Paul was imprisoned, Luke sought out other believers. Many who had been eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry were still alive, and he recorded their experiences with the Savior. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account for the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the beginning were eyewitnesses. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything from the beginning, to write it out for you, so that you may know the exact truth. Luke saw Jesus in his role as the Son of Man, unique in his presence as both God and man, and capable of filling the needs of all his people, children, Gentiles as well as Jews, women as well as men, poor as well as rich. Luke established Christ's love and longing to cure all our infirmities. He wanted to make clear the healing power of the anointed one. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons were also coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God but rebuking them. He would not allow them to speak. To John, the youngest disciple, known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, Jesus was the word made flesh, the great I am, the sovereign God who transcends space, time. Any limitations frail humanity may try to assign. He spoke to the young church, emphasizing Christ's nature and deity, establishing the intrinsic truth of Jesus, God, man, word, and deed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so these four men, extraordinary mostly in their ordinariness, brought together by a shared purpose for the God they loved, wrote down what God gave them. Sometimes they gave accounts of the same event. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to employ him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did the disciples. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, 
Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. Putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, come. Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And the girl got up. One of the most famous incidents occurred like this. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is really late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. Then Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up into heaven, he blessed them, broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they had all ate and were all satisfied, and the broken pieces which had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. There were about five thousand men who ate, besides women and children. On some occasions, only one apostle gave a report. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It is neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay out of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nan, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. As Jesus continued his ministry, he and his disciples drew larger and larger crowds, all seeking the rabbi who spoke with authority and worked miracles, but not all the attention was admiring. The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. The disciples knew their master had enemies in high places, but those threats seemed distant as they entered Jerusalem with him the week before the Passover. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, 
the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front of those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But as Jesus' triumphal week in Jerusalem drew to a close, he knew the adoring throng was soon to change to a jeering mob. His heart was heavy, and he longed for a final evening alone with his disciples. The observation of the Passover Seder what we call the Last Supper, was to be their final time together before his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. This evening was both the beginning of the end of Christ's human life and ministry, and the end of the beginning, for only after his suffering, his death, and his resurrection could he go to prepare a place for us. This is how it happened. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, Teacher, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garment and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. While, <clears throat> while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They begin to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. What you are about to do, do it quickly, Jesus told him. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we know we are surrounded by night, sunk in the darkness of our sins, but we trust in you and the promise of your word which tells us the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Lord, bless us now as we remember your suffering 
in your obedience as you who knew no sin became sin so that we might become righteousness. Renew our minds and our hearts, we pray, as we come together now before your table. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Before you sit down, stand up here for just a moment, please. And Hannah and Amanda, would you please stand up as well? I want to recognize uh, these folks. They're members of this church, and we have uh, David Kalenbrink here. He's one of our elders. And uh, you have Mike Kurtstetter here, and uh, Scott Cronauer, Don Vesey, Jan Thompson, uh, Don Kurtstetter, Hannah, the taller one, uh, piano player, Hannah Fountain, and Amanda Byrne. And then Larry, uh, where's Larry? Larry, where are you? Larry Thompson, where are you? Oh, sitting down. Are you, I'm, and just thank you so much. Thank you. And I got two brave young men back there, and Blake Dubeck and, uh, let's see, Joaquin Taus. They're doing the tech stuff for us, so thank you too, guys. Anyway. Yeah, you can be seated. You can be seated. Thank you again. What a blessing. They do a terrific job. Absolutely do a terrific job. I mean, you tell them one time to do it, and they do it, and then they teach each other. So thank you, John. So in just a minute, we're going to give you the opportunity to take the Lord's uh, Supper. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the phrase intinction, but you can come forward, and our elders will be assisting you. Uh, Larry and Don and David, they'll be up here and uh, you'll just take uh, the bread, which represents the body of Christ. You'll dip it into the fruit of the vine and uh, partake of the body of Christ. And as you do that, uh, you're more than welcome to kneel at the end of the shadow of the cross as you're led. Uh, sit wherever you're at and uh, pray and meditate. And uh, if you're comfortable with that and if you desire that, we want to make that available for you. So. Again, thank you. And we have our Still Creek folks here, James Inman, and he's got a lot of the kids. They they got to take advantage of going home, uh, having an Easter visit, and uh, and then our House of Hope men and uh, both the ministries mean a great deal to this church, and and uh, both ministries uh, surely honor God and what they do, and and uh, the the burden that they've taken on. It's a blessing. It's a task, and, and uh, we're grateful as a church to be able to support that ministry and your ministries, and thank you for being here. Um, so it's over 20 years ago. It was about a two-and-a-half-year period. Uh, I was preaching in Abilene, Texas, and, uh, and it was just a season in my life where uh, we had, for me personally, uh, over a dozen people in that two-and-a-half-year period. Uh, I... I, I don't know how to phrase it. I don't want to use the word opportunity, but uh, as they were dying in the hospice care unit, the Hendricks Hospice Care Unit and the His Hendricks Hospital, um, I was the preacher that would be with them and their family and friends uh, as they as they as their body would pass, as they would would die, and. Um, and in that two-and-a-half-year period, actually, it was about 17 people. And it was just, it seemed like certainly every other month, I, I found myself in the hospice care unit. And whether it was the weeks and the days, the hours, minutes, and seconds with people that I knew, as some of them were members of the church, some that I knew in the, just the community, um, you know, being with a person as they would breathe their last and pass their body physically. Uh, it was a season in my life that took on a great meaning for me, tremendous meaning for me. Don't know that I've ever had, uh, at least in, in, a, in a succinct period of time, such an impactful impression 
from a ministry standpoint. I don't know if you've ever had to experience that, if you've ever been in a place uh, in the years and years of ministry. It's happened even in my short stay here, the five years that I've been here. Um, I've been at that place three different occasions. But there's been many occasions. But that one season, it was I found myself up there in that Hendricks Hospice Care Unit. God gave me a great love in my heart and a gr- great passion in my heart uh, for the hospice care people. Nurse, I don't know if you've ever been to a hospice care unit uh, where someone is living out their last period of time here on earth, but all of those hospice care people to a- an individual, they really were heroic to me. It was something that they do daily. I s- I became very much aware that when Paul would write the Galatians about the fruits of the Spirit, one of the things that I witnessed in these hospice care individuals was genuinely the fruits of the Spirit. A gentleness, a patience, a kindness, even a joy. And so, in fact, tonight, I don't believe in coincidence, but we have David Canterbury's wife, Dawn. That's what she does. She intended to be here. And I thought, again, I don't believe in coincidence knowing what tonight we're celebrating and what the Lord had laid on my heart. She, she was here, and what she had to do, she was called out. She had to, she's going to minister to someone, assist someone as they're passing away. I remember in that season of my life, uh, I would spend time up there in that hospice care unit sometime just sitting in the room with the individual and I would be reading and just be quiet many times. And uh, I would be reading the scripture. And I remember very clearly reflecting one particular evening with somebody that I loved dearly as he was passing. I was reading out of the gospel accounts about what we're remembering tonight. Uh, the, final, uh, the final days Uh, hours, minutes, and seconds of Jesus' life. And so here was my thought then, and I want to share with you this evening before we take the Lord's Supper. Um, And it stuck with me these years, these many years, and I reflect on it every time I find myself in that situation. I, I thought to myself, as you read the gospel accounts, here's what we do know. None of us knows the hour the day, the hour, the moment that we're going to physically die. We don't know. We don't know. If you follow the news um, at any level at all, when someone famous dies, you know, it makes the headlines. You know, we die. Physically, our body quits. It could be tragic. It could be peaceful. Uh, Watching people come to the end of their life, uh, it's an experience in that, I've witnessed so many different layers of that. I did see people peacefully, they just peacefully, very peacefully passed. I saw people in agony and struggling, and I saw families react differently. And so death is a really captivating thing. We're, we're, we're destined to die. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day. We don't know the minute. We do not know the second. We're physically going to die. And then I thought about our Lord. Now, if you could know, if you could know, you could know, I'm going to die. You know, we know when we were born. I was born January 26, 1959. And uh, I knew, I know that, but I don't know. Now, the scripture very clearly says that the days that you would, I would live, they've been ordained. You, you, if Jesus would say on the Sermon on the Mount that just the very hairs on our head are numbered, you, we have a time, and only God knows when that is. But what if? What if you could be like the Lord Jesus? Because he knew. He knew. He knew this day, this Passover moment, This day, he was going to die. Now, you, what if you knew the hour? What if you knew the hour, the day, the moment? What would you do? 
What would you do? You know, you only have a week. We've written songs about this. Poets have written poetry about it. Songs have been written about it. But what would you do? And I think one of the things that we should know, and the connection for me is that we think about our relationship with God. I don't know what you would do. I don't know if you'd travel right up to the day that you died. I don't know if you'd have a great feast or fellowship. I don't know if you don't know what you would. Maybe you would have your own thoughts. Well, if I knew I was going to die this day, I'd do this. But Jesus knew, and what did he do? We so casually think sometimes, I think about our Lord, and maybe it can even become mundane. We've, we've accepted the fact that he died on a cross. And it was 2,000 years ago, and that was a long time ago. And we try to understand the blessings that we receive from that, and we're thankful for it. Have no doubt. When you start to really examine that, what did he choose? Because he did choose how he would live, knowing his final moment. And if you start reading and really putting that thing under the under the microscope, what did he do? What would a president have done? What would a powerful man or woman, what, did, what would a, 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 a billionaire or a king, what would they do? What would somebody of great fame, the son of God, the living son of God, and, that, and we're mindful, all he had to do was call, all he had to do was call 12,000 angels. At any moment, all he had to do was gaze towards heaven and really just even have the thought and a legion of angels would have freed him from that moment in his life. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. But what did he do? Well, he endured the mockery of praise. We all like to be praised. You want to see a child smile from the youngest child, the youngest infant, you, you heap some praise on them and they smile. We like to be praised. It, we enjoy that. And especially if we feel as though we've earned it. If you feel as though you've earned, man, I worked hard for this. I did this. And I'm getting recognition for it. And boy, that's even more rewarding. Imagine he's going into Jerusalem and they're praising him. Palm Sunday, last Sunday, they got the palm leaves out. The sheaves, they're waving Hosanna, praising him. And he knew how false that was. He knew that every person that was praising him would be cursing him, would be saying, within the week, crucify him. He knew that. Then he's there. He's living his life exactly according to Scripture. We know at this meal, at, there's a point where he would wash the feet of every man who is going to betray him. Judas sold him out. They all betrayed him. He washed their feet. He, uh, he chose to, to keep his mouth shut in the mockery of a trial. He, he went to a garden, and he asked these men to just, I need you to just, just stay awake and pray with me. And they couldn't do it. He prayed, Father, take this cup from me, however not my will, but your will be done. And, and the scripture says that th the prayer was so agonizing that his sweat turned into blood. It, it, and that's actually a, can happen. That you, you can be in so much agony. There's a term for it where sweat will have a, a blood tint to it, an agonizing prayer. And then, and then he subjected himself to brutal beatings. The son of the living God. The son of the living God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he, he who know no, knew no sin became sin. He became sin.
This is how he chose to spend his life knowing physically that he was going to be tortured and die. This is what he did. By the way, he called Judas, if you read the Gospel of John, he called Judas friend. It's in the Gospel. So armed with all that knowledge and a will to honor his father, he, he lived exactly the way he chose to live under the conditions that he would live into the submitting himself. The scripture, Paul writes to the Philippians, he said, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then there were six hours. Six hours on the cross. Six hours with a crown of thorns driven into his skull. The, the, the religious leaders of the day saying he saved others, save himself. His mother watching him die. I believe she's the only one that didn't betray him. That's my personal belief. And he's watching her. Mary chosen of God. He's watching her, knowing her suffering. And uh, at some point, a criminal who had also been mocking him, at some point a criminal realized, this man's done nothing wrong. And he said, you're going to be with me in paradise today. And then... At that moment, it says he gave up his spirit. You and I won't have that choice. We're going to give up our, but we won't have the choice. It said, he, he said, he get, and he said, it's finished. So I, I just want us to consider that. We should consider it daily. If you could choose how you would die, the conditions and the way that you would die, knowing the time that you would die. How, how would you, what would, what would you do? Most of us, to our own shame, we would not, we would not, we wouldn't put up for one second somebody mocking me and despising me. We don't even do it as we're living. We certainly wouldn't do it in our last moments. We're so easily offended and we're so easily angered and we're so easily, and if you knew you were going to die, you think you're going to put up with people mocking you? You think you're going to want to be around a group of people that you know they're praising you today, but they're going to betray you, they're going to call for your life within a week? You think the time that you had invested in your very closest com companions that, and you would know, would you wash their feet? Would you, knowing that they were all going to flee, would you call the one who would sell you out friend? And I'm talking about Holy Spirit-filled Christians now. Uh, so us with the Holy Spirit in us, how would you live out your final days? And if you knew what the Lord knew. And the reason I share that with you before we take the Lord's Supper, Paul also wrote the Corinthians. He said, examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. Examine yourself. This isn't about you and I doing something. You know, I'm going to take the Lord's Supper. It's in the Bible, and we, it's even a command. It, it really, there's imperative language there. and It's something I do, and it makes me feel a little bit better about myself. I don't know what your thinking is, but I know what it should be. I know what Paul says, that we ought to examine ourselves. We ought to examine ourselves. The writer of Hebrews says, although he was tempted in everything, he didn't sin. You and I, Christian, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we do sin. And so every time we take this, we should examine ourselves and remember how he chose to die knowing what he knew. And you and I ought to examine ourselves in such a way that fully understanding, Lord, I failed you. I failed you daily. I continue to fail you daily. I I hate that. I just hate it. I so desperately want to honor you. And then here it is, guys. 
the real reason we celebrate this is because he did know when he was going to die. And he knew exactly what the circumstances and the events would be. And he knew the tragedy and the pain and the humiliation. And so when we think about a body that's been broken and blood that has been spilled and who we are, not knowing the day of our death, we should just be consumed with this overwhelming sense of gratitude that says, oh my, the broken body of Jesus, the one that knew, he knew how he would die. He knew when he would die. And the blood that would flow out of his body drip onto the cross and down on the ground. The precious blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin. All of our sin. Our past sin, our present sin, the sin we're going to commit today, the sin we are committing today, and the sin that we will commit tomorrow. It says not only does he forgive our sins, he forgets them. He forgets them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for, it almost seems um, to say thank you is not enough. We do thank you, but Father, it just, I wish that it could be more. I wish that as we say thank you, that the expression would be this overwhelming outpouring from our heart that really genuinely speaks to you, Father, and not only speaks to you, but it transforms our daily living, and then it speaks to a lost world. It speaks to a lost world that says there's something different about those people. They understand something that that maybe someone wouldn't understand. They understand the suffering of a Savior. And I would pray that would be in our lives. I would pray that it would become evident in a way that we would live, Father, so that as we go into this world, we go into this world, Father, and we do proclaim you and we do share our faith and we live according to the faith that we have in you and your son and the, and the forgiveness that you've given us, Father, that, it, that it's obvious, that it's so obvious that people would see more of that in us than the world and that anything that is worldly and earthly, Father, that you would crush it and remove it from our lives because of the gratitude that we have. So when we say thank you, Father, I just pray that that gratitude becomes an overwhelming expression that can be seen and known in a dark, lost, and ungrateful world, Father. And so it is in the name of our gratitude, in the name of our love for you, in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Masca, our elders to come forward. And, uh, I guess we can start with the first row of these gentlemen right here. Is that correct? And Larry, is there anything you want to come to this table remembering what Christ did for us? Uh, for, for using intention, take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice, and then partake. And if you want to come up to the altar and kneel, that's fine. If you want to go to the seats and pray, that's We'll start with this row right here.